0: Okay. Um, at, when I originally presented the idea of the shear, it was sort of a, a deviation, and then I realized that's a little silly. We're just about ten daf ahead of ourselves with the she'er, uh, and um, so I'm, I'm going to start this, but by making it though a uh, timely event and not a dafli event, and that is if someone were to um, to see you post Pesach, oh, say no to you. Yeah, I'm after. Yeah, um, and some and were to see that you uh, that um, you know Jews normally have a lot of gatherings and weddings and all sorts of simchas and suddenly find out that that drops down to very little now and then in about a week it drops down to zero. How would you explain that? And if and if they were to see that you maybe had a little extra stubble on the chin, how would you explain that? What would you say?
1: Sorry, I'm not sure I ac-
0: understand the question. If someone were to see that you had a little extra, or I had a little extra stubble on the chin, or to hear that uh, that somebody was planning a wedding, and they said, "Okay, our wedding," uh, you know, ob- obviously we can't have a wedding in the next few weeks, so we'll have a wedding uh, in the beginning of June, and they'd say, "Why? Well, how come we can't have a wedding during the month of May?" What would you answer them?
1: Because we're in mourning.
0: The morning. Okay, good. The period of Omer is a period of mourning. Okay. What are you mourning for? I mean, we don't just mourn to mourn. We mourn because of some loss. What's the loss that we're mourning for? Rabakiva students. Rabakiva students. Okay, let's take a look at that story. And I'm going to use that as the test. Meaning, is that really the reason that we avoid doing what we do during this period? We're not going to necessarily get to a final answer in our hour. But let's take a look at the source text. I'm going to introduce it, and Kurt, you'll forgive me, but I'm going to introduce it with the pasuk, right? Uh, because this pasuk is actually going to be the center of the entire shir. It has a pasuk that has nothing to do with the Omer, although actually it kind of does. It is a pasuk that has nothing to do with mourning, for sure. We'll take a look. The pasuk in Kohelet, source number one on the page, Baboker Zra et is towards the end of Kohelet. Remember, Kohelet is wisdom literature, and it's offering... Uh, advice, as it were, in the morning, plant your seeds. And in the evening, don't stop. You don't know which one will work out well, this one or that one. And if they both work out well, that's great. So in other words, the advice seems to be start your planting in the morning, And keep planting. And if we want to take the term morning and use it a little bit idiomatically, we could say early in the season and later in the season, because you don't know which crop is going to work out well. And this one might, that one might. And uh, of course, if they both work out well, that's even better. Which, by the way, is an interesting piece of wisdom. It isn't suggesting that you should plant in the morning and plant all the way till the evening, because the more you plant, the better it is and because you should lay, lay up goods against the winter, but rather you don't know what's going to happen to your crop. Okay, that's the pasuk. All right, that's the background. And now we're going to take a look at a Mishnah, which is coming up for us. It's going to be on Daft Samachbet. So we'll get to it in a little less than two weeks on the daf. And that is the core rule rule of Purvu. The Torah, the first command that God gives us as humankind is the mitzvah of purvu of being fruitful and multiplying and having kids, and the as with any with any mitzvah, we have to have the parameters: uh, who is obligated, under what circumstances you're obligated, and for our purposes, how many kids is the obligation? Now, the reason that this is in Yivamot should be fairly straightforward, because Yivamot is all about Purvu, and the driving interest here isn't about having kids. So, a person should not abstain from having kids. And this may be addressing somebody who who wants to delay starting a family or delay getting married. It may address somebody who maybe has been married for a while and hasn't been successful having kids and has given up. Unclear. But if you already have kids, you don't have to continue, which means that however many kids we're going to say is the minimum. Once you have had that, you have no obligation to have more. And now how many is the minimum? um Beit Shammai say two boys. And in the Mishnah, they don't give a reason for why two boys is the the minimum. Beit Hillel say, actually, it's a male and a female. Beit Hillel does cite a proof text, which is from the beginning of creation, when God creates man, capital M, he creates them as male and female, which is an interesting notion. On the one hand, Beit Hillel's position is very attractive, because the idea is you're creating the possibility of the next generation. Now, of course, not incestuously, but the point is that this boy can go off and marry a girl and have kids, and this girl can go off and marry a boy and have kids, and you're creating future generations. If you only have boys or only have girls, then you don't, Inherently build that in. Okay, that's possibility one. On the other hand, you take a look at and you say, well, you're using a pasuk not about man's deeds, but about God's deeds, as if to say we have to imitate God. God created male and female. So you also have to create male and female. That's a little weird because I've never heard of an obligation that every person has to create a sun and moon and stars or to divide the sea from the land. In other words, we're not obligated to, to imitate God's creation. So the question is what that means. But well, we're going to see more clarity in the parallel tosefta. Here it is. As you can see, it's yeah, longer. Rabbi, how do they explain the word revu?
1: peru or revu? If there only right. two becoming two, there's no revia.
0: Right. So, so, pru or revu here would then be mean, thank you. purvu would then mean that seem would seem to be the act itself of being fruitful, which means to bear fruit. And revu would seem to be multiple. So You could read that Prue would be one kid and "revu" makes it two, if you want to. Um, on the other hand, they could read prue revu" as something like, almost like a hendiadys, where it's really two words that create one idea. Be fruitful. I have lots of kids. Yeah, All
1: right. but so, in the word multiply is the fact that the, the product will be more than than either, than, than these. That's not true, unless you're dealing with fractions.
0: Right. So remember, fractions. But "revu" remember, doesn't necessarily need to multiply. We, we should be careful that our translations don't drive our meaning. Revu means to become multitudinous. Many, right? So pru revu may mean have more than you, which would mean at least three, because there's two people who are being addressed. It could also mean, revu means propagate, and propagate would be to have two more, right? Sort of ZPG in a way. But you'll see that in Tosefta it gets even stranger. And sure, when your, your, your question is being even stronger than Tosefta, as you'll see. That's exactly the Mishnah. Now, this is a critical piece. And sadly, um, in the Shoah, this became a very practical thing. If you have uh, somebody has kids and their kids all die, but their kids had kids. So do you have to have more kids? The answer is no. You have grandchildren. That's like children. Let's say you had kids. And now Echad assumes that there's some minimum number and you're now one below that number. So if one of them dies or one of them became infertile, one of them became castrated, as an example, then you you can't desist, which means you have, let's say the number is six. You have six kids and then one of those kids dies or one of those kids becomes castrated or in some other way unable to reproduce you have to go and have another kid to fill your six i'm making up the number six <speaking in Spanish> a man should not live without a wife which addresses of course issues of widowers etc the isha and the position here is that a woman shouldn't be single either People should know This, of course, is addressing what, for many people, people become widowed, or become, at one point in their life, and the idea is, okay, or would my married life. You know, I'm going to stay alone. The answer is no. You should be... Uh, there's a beautiful passage in the Midrash Bray Rabbah. Lo ish below Isha, below Isha below ish. Below shtehem, below shechina. Right? Man should not be without a woman. A woman should be without a man. And the two of them should not be without God's presence. It's a beautiful, uh, beautiful passage. Now... Continuing, believe it or not, they had birth control in those days. And there was some sort of uh, orally taken drug that would prevent them from reproducing. A man's not allowed to drink that. And the same thing with a woman. This is a birth control. And I'm not talking about the halachic aspects of birth control, which is a com- complicated sugya. Um, a man should not marry a woman who he knows to be barren who's a woman who's postmenopausal Ailonit, a woman who is as we've talked about in I already a woman who basically hasn't developed sexually tana, a woman underage age or in any other way can't give birth a woman should not marry a castrated man and a castrated man even one who's is not a sort and this develop, devolves into another issue, which is the prohibition against castration and spaying, etc. Now, this goes back to the original thing about the Shiur. Remember, we saw in the Mishnah, there was a dispute, two boys are boy and a girl. But watch what happens here. K'vanav shel Moshe. Now we have a source for HMI. Where did they get the idea of two boys? Moshe had two boys. And by the way, what did Moshe do after he had those two boys? He ignored them. And, but who else did he ignore? His wife. Exactly. He abstained. And certainly according to rabbinic tradition, he did not maintain marital relations with her because he was always on call for prophetic uh, experience. But that means that evidently he had fulfilled his obligation. So two boys seem to be enough. That's actually in Devarim. Like our Mishnah, but watch this. Now we have a different opinion, and sure, when here's where your, your question about Ravu comes in. Rabbi Yonatan disagrees with Rabbi Natan about Beit Shammai BeHill's discussion. I Meaning, they remember, Beit Shammai had the disagreement, and it was recorded orally. And we don't have a, uh, we have different versions of what they said. And so, Rionatan has a different version. He said, Beit said, male and female, which is what Beit said in our version of the Mishnah. According to this, that's what Beit said. And Beit said, Zachar on now, bringing this to you just to expand the Mishnah a little bit, so we see a broader range, both different opinions and some more information about it, and Bechamay's reasoning of the original opinion. But it's I brought it all to introduce us to the sugya, because what you see across the board, both in the Mishnah and the Tosefta, is that Puravu has very clear parameters of how many kids you have to have before you can stop. And the numbers are relatively low. And I say relatively, no pun intended, but relatively to what we're accustomed to in the traditional world. So the interesting thing, I, we have five kids. So when I interact with uh, non-observant friends or non-Jewish friends, I'm sure you guys have all experienced this. They're like, five kids? How far are you crazy? How do you have five kids? It's nuts, right? And then on the other hand, I hang out with uh, relatives or friends who were in the more insular world. And they, and they when I say five kids, their next statement is so far, right? So yeah, it's all contextual, but it's a little unusual for us to think about one or two kids being the parameter per Purvu when almost all the families that we know have more than that. All right, so the Gemara picks this up, and it says the following, matnitin delav Yoshua. Our Mishnah does not follow Rabbi Yoshua. Now, by the way, we have to see what that means. Because our Mishnah represents Beit Shammai versus Beit Hillel, two kids, only question what about what's the gender? And we're saying the Mishnah does not follow Rabbi Yeshua. So does that mean that Rabbi Yeshua disagrees with Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel? Not likely. Now, just so that we're working together here, why do I say not likely that Rabbi Yeshua disagrees with Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel? Well, he he seems to have covered all the bases between the four opinions we've had. So, why is it not likely, though, that we mean here that Rabbi Shua disagrees with the Be'd When do they, we've talked about this before, when do Becham be Hill exist? When do those schools exist? At what point in history? Or more importantly, when do they cease to exist? Okay, we talked about this when we did Lotit Kodidu. Yeah? Uh, about, um, about, uh... 90 BCE, something like that? Or? Oh, not 90, not B- B- BCE. Hillel, remember, dies around the year zero. Okay. Right? Beit Hillel Beit Shammai do not last past the destruction. Beit Shammai Beit Hillel are essentially two generations. There's Hillel Shammai and there's two generations <clears throat> of their students that are for the first 60 or 70 years of the Common Era. With the destruction of the Beit Tamikdash, that's the end of it. Urbushua, of course, is afterwards. Rabbi Shua a young man at the time of the korban, but his leadership as a rabbi is afterwards. Rabbi Shua is also a student of Beit Hillel. So we say Rabbi Shua disagrees, what does he really disagree with? Does he disagree with Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel's ruling, or does he maybe have a different version of the ruling? Words, he, he disagrees with the Mishnah's presentation of Beit Hillel, because he says that's wrong. That's not what Beit Hillel said. That's possibility one. Possibility, too, is that when we, if we read Rabbi Yeshua carefully, we'll see that he may not really be at odds with the Mishnah. Okay, let's think about the Mishnah for a moment, and then we'll look at Rabbi Yeshua. What does the Mishnah actually say? We'll just stay with the Mishnah, the Tosefta is just a variation on it. What does the Mishnah actually say? A person should not do what?
1: Um, um, Should not refrain from having children. Should
0: not refrain from having children, unless they have the minimum which means you don't have a right to say I'm going to go into business which will make me travel a lot and I can't have kids, or whatever it may be, uh, unless you already have the minimum of kids, which is two, and then discuss what those two are. You'll see that Rabbi Yeshua is not necessarily at odds with that. <clears throat> and it could be that the Gemara is saying this very expansively and meaning that the Mishnah is giving not giving you the full picture, meaning the Mishnah is talking in very strict legalistic terms Rabbi Yeshua has a broader view that he wants to share. All right, so keep both those possibilities in mind. Either Rabbi Yeshua is disagreeing about what Beit Helmet Shama actually said, and he says they didn't limit it to two. Or maybe Rabbi Yeshua is saying, yes, for the perspective of Puravu, that's true, but there's another consideration that I want to share with you. All right, let's see. Rabbi Yeshua Omer, and I put the bright in blue, Tanadic literature. Nasa <laughs> Adam Rameshul gives advice. What's the advice? If you got married when you're young, get married again when you're older. That does not mean that when you're 40 or 50 or whatever it is, you should immediately get rid of your wife and go find some young girl. It doesn't mean that at all. <laughs> it means if you find yourself no longer married in your older age, marry again. That's what it means. And now, <laughs> So Rameshul gives two pieces of advice that go in tandem. If you were married when you're young, get married again when you're older, and don't be alone. And if you had kids when you're young, have more kids when you're older. Which, by the way, seems to turn the Mishnah on its head, because instead of saying, the minute that you've hit the minimum, you're free to desist, Rabbi Yeshua is saying, not a good idea. Don't do that. You had kids when you're younger, have more kids when you're older. Now, you would think that Rabbi Yeshua's reason for that would be, the more kids, the better. And Sherwin's claim about Revu, which have taken in its spirit, is have lots of kids. Because what's the next word in the Torah? Me, Be are to multiply and fill the land. Can't exactly fill the land with two kids. So he, he, you would think that that's what Yeshua's reason It's not. He quotes our Pasuk that we saw in Kohelet. So now, what's Rabbi Shua's argument for having a second generation of kids, as it were? The kids of your younger years and the kids of your older years. What's his argument? The, are never... the,
1: the Deceptor says that the man's not allowed to marry someone who is an old lady.
0: Right, but what's well, the argument for saying, even though you already had kids when you're younger, don't stop. Have more kids. You don't know what fate awaits them. Exactly. You don't know what's going to happen to any of them. And therefore, to cover your bets, hedge your bets, and cover all bases, have kids young, have kids old, and, you know, hopefully some of them work out okay. And by the way, if they all work out okay, that's great. I have friends, you you probably have friends also, who actually do have, shall we say, two generations of kids. Not exactly two generations of kids, but kids that they had when they were about 20, 21, and kids that they had in their late 30s. And they're very different. They're very different, and some of them are doing more better in life, and some of them are not doing as well. And it's there's not, it's not a consistent. It's not like the ones from the young age or older are always better off. It happens, right? Okay. That's Rabbi Yeshua. Now, Rabbi Yeshua had a wonderful student by the name of Rabbi Kiva. We all know him. Rabbi Kiva Omer, If you studied Torah when you're young, Study Torah when you're older. Now, what does Rabbi Akiva seem to be doing with Rabbi Yeshua's words? Remember, Rabbi Yeshua said, if you're married when you're young, marry again when you're older, if you're alone. And if you had kids when you're young, have more kids when you're older, which, by the way, not the same thing. It's not a parallel because you only marry again when you're older if you're not married anymore. But having kids, you have more kids, even if all your kids are alive, have more kids. Rabbi Kiva says, if you study Torah when you're young, have studied Torah when you're older. So, what is Rabbi Kiva doing with Rabbi Yeshua's lesson? Is Rabbi's lesson?
1: He's likening uh, studying Torah to childbirth. Uh,
0: almost. What's he likening studying Torah to? Having kids. What? Having kids. No, he's not. Look at no. it again. Oh. Look at it again.
1: Or, stating, if you study, if you. Study Torah your entire life, your, your, your putter from having children.
0: Except, watch what he says. Rabbi Shua said, if you were married earlier, marry again later. And then he said, if you had kids earlier, have kids later. Rabbi Akiva now says, if you studied Torah when you're young, study Torah when you're older. In Rabbi Akiva's calculus, studying Torah is his extension of getting married. Of getting married. I'll show you. Because what else does Rabbi Akiva say? If you had students when you were young, have students when you're old. Same pasuk. quotes the same pasuk. So what does Rabbi Akiva do with Rabbi Yeshua's homily? Rabbi Yeshua's homily is there's a pasuk about planting for farmers. A pasuk is about farmers. Rabbi Yeshua takes it as a homily to talk about marriage, marital life, and kids. What does Rabbi Akiva do with that homily? He extends it to the study of Torah. And the wife is your Torah and the kids are your students. All right. It's
1: ironic that it's Rabbi Akiva saying this because he didn't start until he was later.
0: Right. So that's something that at some point I want to do with you guys is the various traditions about Rabbi Akiva. And did he really start when he was 40? Did he maybe start when he was much younger and actually wasn't that successful of a student? We have Agadot going in different directions. But you're right that according to some of the traditions, Rabbi Akiva, we're going to see one of them tonight. Um, according to uh, some of the traditions and the, the most well-known ones, Rabbi Akiva actually got a very late start in his Torah study. And maybe that's why he didn't want to adopt what Rabbi Yeshua said, mm-hmm. as he couldn't say, Torah be could be. Um, okay, so Rabbi Akiva takes this approach. I'm sorry, so, right. And so he, he applies the Torah because maybe he's saying, those of you who learned when you were young, should learn when you're older, because look what I'm missing. I'm learning when I'm older, and I would have so much more if I learned when I'm young. Maybe. Okay. Um, good. So that's the background. Now, notice that this discussion has nothing to do with the Omer. The only thing I do with the Omer is it's about planting. That's it. And this discussion has nothing to do with mourning. This discussion has, has something to do with purvu. And then, by extension, the notion of continuing your uh, not only family life but also your Torah life and Torah teaching life uh, into multiple generations. Two little vignettes about this one's a, one's more a vignette, one's an actual story <clears throat> about this this uh agada this midrash really on the psukim. <clears throat> First of all, if you and I'm you know, some of you I know have done this if you go uh into old Batei midrash walk into the mirror. Um, I don't know what's going on now, but back in the day when Rav Guzman was there walking in Neitzah Yisrael, walking in the Bate Midrash in Ushalayim, that are filled with young men studying and uh, studying B'chavruta. And you will sometimes see in the corner, uh, you'll see this in, in Batei Midrash in Bait Bagan and in Rechavia, places like that. You'll sometimes see in the, in the corner an old man sitting, and sometimes he'll be sitting by himself studying. But sometimes what you see is, you see this old man studying, and there's a bunch of young men sitting around him. And you know who the old guy is? The old guy is some high school rabbi from the States who retired, made Aliyah. And uh, he raised uh, 40 years of students in the States. But fine, so now I've got to raise my students in Israel. So he goes and finds a Beit Midrash. He finds a little corner to sit in. He's not paid by anybody. He's retired. And he sits and learns all day. And he has either people, young people coming up to him and asking him questions, or he has a little chaburah of students who study with him. It's a beautiful thing. And it's it's sort of this, this image of what Rabbi Kiva advised. One thing about Rabbi Yeshua's homily is, I want to just t- share a story. It's very hard for me to teach this sugi without a story. There's a lot of stories here. <clears throat> when I was in, in yeshiva, right after high school, there was a fellow, it was a couple of years my senior, um, who uh, was considered to be like everybody around the Shiva talked about him like he was, you know, off the charts genius, a very bright guy. And I became friendly with him. I was at his wedding. I was at, my house, at his house. Um, and his name was Frati. His name is Frati. And um, I learned that he, that he came from an important rabbinic family and that his father was a big rub in Yerushalayim. And his father was also the rub of a shoal, not far from where my aunt's house was. So when I went to my aunt for Shabbos, I'd go over to that shul for Shal Siddhas, and I'd hear his father speak, and I was very impressed by him, but I noticed that his father was way older than he was, meaning this guy was a little little older than I was. I was 18, he was 20, something like that, and the father seemed to be like 80. So I was a little surprised, because I figured his father was a Rav, he probably came from a rabbanish family, and, you know, pigeonholing people as we do with our stereotypes, I assumed he had 15 brothers and sisters. And da, da 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 da. Turned out that his father was indeed over 60 years older than he was. And he had only one sibling. He had a sister. And his sister was 30 years older than he was. So I asked a little bit and I found out his father had been an important dying in Europe, he had eight kids. And the Nazi Zimach butchered his family and killed seven of his kids and his wife. And he and a daughter survived. So he and his daughter came to Israel and he did exactly what Yeshua said. He got married again and he had another kid. And that kid was Yosef Efrati. And it was uh, a very powerful thing because once I knew that story, and then I was at the wedding and I saw he and his father interacting. a very powerful sense of, uh, you know, our, our best revenge against the Nazis and ashram is to dance at the wedding of survivors and their kids. Um, but in any case, enough for the vignettes. Now, Amru, and I want you to think about this. Rabbi Akiva comes up with a lesson, which is if you had students when you're younger, have more students when you're older. Did Rabbi Akiva come up with that idea of his own intelligence from the verse and from his teacher's homily and extending it? Maybe, but watch this. Amru, there's another Tanaedic tradition that gets woven in here. Shneim asar elef zugim talmidim hayu Rabbi Akiva. We have a, a story that Rabbi Kiva had 12,000 pairs of students. Now, you notice that that is an odd way to say it, 12,000 pairs of students. We can all do the math. It's 24,000 students. 12,000 pairs of students, right? migvat Ad Antifras. Gavat is somewhere in the north. Antifras is somewhere near, near Netanya. They all died at one shot, like in one short period. Now, this is a troubling line. I want to talk about it for a moment, because they did not show respect for each other. Now, the phrase, some people interpret as meaning that they all studied bachavruta. Words in pairs, in dyads, and that they didn't treat each other with respect, which means they didn't feel like they could learn from the other guy. And so that's why they died. Very uh, a lot of difficulties with that interpretation but that interpretation is used to explain the odd wording of 12,000 pairs of students instead of saying 24,000 because it's 12,000 Chavruta the reason that's difficult is because what's the earliest point in history that we learn about Chavruta study not Chavura study of studying in a group but Chavruta two people me know? I Yitzchak where do you have a record of that? Chavruta. <laughs> Two people studying together. <inaudible> what? <inaudible> Where do you <inaudible> have a huh? uh, uh, father teaching his son while they're walking on the way. He's talking about Parah uh, about uh, Egl get it. Fine. Where do you actually have Chavruta study? I don't think you can find it before Volashim. I don't think that that was the style of study. What we envision as the ideal and maybe the nearly uh, exclusive form of, of Torah study, the Chavruta, which is fantastic, two people sitting opposite each other at the table with the Gemara and battling it out, I don't know if it predates Veloshim. I don't know. So it's a little hard to say that that's the case with ben students. Shalonaku ha'kogu as that seems to mean, that the students were not respectful towards each other. Okay, the second thing is they died because they didn't show respect for each other. So there's several problems with that statement. First of all, what does it say on the toe tag? You got 24,000 dead people here. What does the coroner say is cause of death? Disrespect? That's a little hard. So I want to step aside from this for a minute because it's important when learning Agada to, to think seriously and think deeply. And I'm going to now go even a parenthesis inside that parenthesis. Agada, meaning non-halachic texts of the Talmud, <clears throat> is something which is often relegated to, shall we say, less than uh, highest energy. As a result of that, the following happens. Either when people are studying the main masachet in yeshiva, they will skip agada. They'll skip agada. They'll study the halachic section. If there's an agadic section. They'll skip to the next thing. For that mode of study, it's probably appropriate. When people want to study something, as they call it, bibbikiyut, meaning so we're going to study something uh, quickly to master more text, they'll often take a text with lots of agada. I remember somebody once telling me, "Yeah, we study brachot because it's easy." I look at the guy. I said, "Easy." What is so easy about a formula for seeing demons? What is so easy for understanding that God wears tefillin and what's written in God's tefillin? I'm just taking a few things out of Brachot, out of the Agadic sections of Brachot. What's so easy about Eliyahu and Avi meeting the Tanaim, and asking him what voice he heard from heaven when he went into Davin in a destroyed building in Risholim? These are all from the first chapter of Brachot. It's easy because people actually don't want to spend time thinking about it, and they kind of run through it, and they don't they either take it literally, which is a crime, or else they just say it means what it means. But I don't know. Uh, we Agadah deserves much more attention than that. So let's think about what's the problem. What is problematic about this? They all died because they didn't show respect for each other. So my first question is, what did it actually say on the toe tag? So the answer is, it said they died from the sword. They died from a plague. They died from whatever. We'll see. So what does this, what does it mean to say they died because they didn't show respect for each other? So let's move out of the inner parentheses to the outer parentheses, which is hashkafa, the Jewish way of looking at things, if you will. And this is in Tanakh, this is in Chazal, it's all over. Understands that history is an onion. History is an onion. And when you peel away the outer layer, there's yet another layer. There is multiple causality in major events. And I'll give you three quick examples. We just celebrated Pesach. Why did we end up in Egypt at all as slaves? We celebrated getting out. We all ate more. We all recognized we were slaves. Why do we end up as slaves in Egypt? Because of a famine. Because <laughs> of a famine. Very good. Keep going. What? No, because, because
1: Hashem promised I'd run. Is that what's going to happen. Thank
0: you. Okay. So Abe and Sherwin, I'm two Kohani here, uh, at least that I can see on my screen, have just given us both answers. All right. Sherwin said there was a famine. I could add to that the brothers sold Yosef. All right. Um, I could add to that Yaakov favored Yosef over the other brothers. Robs the uh, rebuke of, Yo, of Yaakov. And on the other hand, Abe says, this brief of a tarim, God promised that him. His kids would be strangers in a foreign land, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Which is it? So the answer is that for every major event in Jewish history, there is proximate causality which you can identify through the traditional, logical, and scientific modes of causal relationships. Mm-hmm. And there is the theological reality that underlies them. I'll give you a second example. Near the beginning of Yehoshua, the nation steamrolls through Yericho, as we know, and then they, uh, they encounter a battle that should be very easy for them at Ha'ai, and they lose. Why did they lose at Ha'ai? So on the one hand, it's very clear from the text that they had bad reconnaissance, bad information, they were told that these people are very easy and don't spend too many soldiers, and they got beat. On the other hand, we have a backstory, which is that after the destruction of Yericho, where the people were told not to take any spoils, Achan took spoils for himself, and as a result of that, the people were cursed, and they were going to become cherem, and they'd be destroyed unless they got rid of the cherem. Right? Take a look in chapter 7 of Yoshua. Of So which is the real reason why they lose it high? The answer is both. So now I'll go to the third and final example of this, and I'm still within the parentheses. Why was the Beit Hamikdash destroyed in the year 70 when the Romans destroyed it? Why was it destroyed? Anybody? Okay, so Bill says baseless hatred. And Nigel, what were you going to say? So sacred right. The sacred. Anybody else? Um, they, they started a war with the most powerful. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. So now when it comes to let's start with this simple thing. The, the answer to this question, by the way, and the answer to any of these questions is going to be, it depends who you ask. It's always, it depends, you know, that it depends who you ask. Right. So if you ask a political scientist, whose expertise is in the area of the classical world, he'll say, the Jews picked a fight with the Romans. Of course they got beat. What do you expect? If you ask a theologian, they'll tell you, Sinat chinam, or they'll tell you, batarat chila, or any one of the other explanations Chazal gives. Now, which is, the, which is the reality? The answer is they're both reality. On the outside of the onion, what you see is what's visible to us as proximate causes. You start a war with an empire, you get beat peel away the onion and you could see underneath that there were divisions among the people the people's relationship to Torah was not what it should be etc cetera, etc cetera. and they're all part of this part of one complex truth all right so causality is not is not monomodal it's multiple there are multiple modes to it and so the same thing here when you come back to our story and we ask why did they die they died because of some medical reason they died Cut somebody's head off, they stop breathing. Somebody there's a plague, people die. But what's underneath that? What's the reason that these people were vulnerable to this plague or whatever? The answer is because of the way they treated each other. Okay, yeah,
1: but you, you, you turn around and ask the question: Since when is you're not know, dealing with your fellow man de chavod bita?
0: Very good. So let's now take Sherwin's question. It's exactly what we got to do when we study Agada, and that's why this has just become a two part year, right? Because we really need to give it attention. You're right. And we'll be much closer to this subya next week anyways. Um, Since when does treating each other with disrespect something that earns you the death penalty? So there's several approaches to that. Approach number one, and feel free to chime in, but approach number one is that um, in times of divine disfavor, shall we call it, the bar is set much higher. And this happened during the second century, during a time when there was lots of persecution. This is really right at the end of or the aftermath of the Bar Kokhba rebellion. And so the bar is set higher. But I'm going to switch that around a little bit. Who are we talking about here who didn't treat each other well? We're not talking about Chaim yanko We're not talking about the Pep boys. We're talking about the students of Rabbi Kiva. These are the students of Torah. And if the students of Torah are not treating each other well, that's what we call a chilol Hashem. That's what we call debasing God's name to everybody. So it could be that the stakes are higher for these guys. And I want to take that and turn it into another question, which is, if you play on Rabbi Akiva's baseball team, what does it say on the uniform? There's a big iron on the side, Akiva. And what does it say in the circle that goes around the island? That's it. That's our motto. We have we got a sign, we got a song, we've got jerseys, we got bubble head, head dolls, we got everything. And imagine that. Here's Rabbi Akiva, the master of Yahapulaka Kamocha, called Gadoba Torah, and he's got thousands of students, and none of them treat each other nicely. Pretty odd. So let me now ask you this. When did Rabbi Akiva come to the determination that the Haft is called Gadova Torah, is a very important rule. Maybe this event taught him that lesson. In other words, maybe he was, he was a master teacher and teaching them all of the intricate halachot and all the difficult exegetical methodology that he was to some, in some cases, even in, innovating. And nonetheless, they they weren't nice people. They weren't nice to each other. And maybe said, you know what? The most important rule is how you treat each other. Could be that that's a realization afterwards. But in any case, these guys all died, however many they are. Now, when you hear a number like 12,000 or 12,000 pairs, what's your instinctive response to the number?
1: It's an exaggeration.
0: It sounds like an exaggeration. First of all, it's a rounded number. Second of all, it sounds like a, a humongous amount. Of, uh, of students, and th- there may be a way to make the number work, but we're going to see a few other sources. Actually, um, we'll finish the sugya tonight and uh next week to see the fuller picture. So that's that's the story as we have it. Olam shamen. So back to the text, we're totally out of parentheses now. Olam shamen. The world was desolate. Now, when it says the world was desolate, what does that mean? What world was desolate? So, the Torah world. it's the world of Torah, right In other words, it, it's it there's there's all these students studying Torah and suddenly they all die and like in one shot, which means by the way, they don't have time to generate a next generation of students. They all die at one shot and they're his students. so there's no more students. Now are there of course there are other students and by the way, there are students in Bavel at the time. not many that we heard of, but Bavel does have some Torah cooking and there's students in other parts of Israel. but the main thing when we keep a students, Nothing there. What happened? Until Rabbi Akiva came to our masters, our Raboteinu in the south. He moved south, and he found students. But notice, he didn't find students. Who did he find? Raboteinu, which means he found people who were already masters. And he taught the Torah to them. They were already masters, and now they were going into the, the highest midrash, midrash of Rabbi Kiva. and who were they? Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Huda, Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Lezav and Shavua. Five great students, four of whom, or all five of them whom, formed the core of the Mishnah. I want you to picture the names. Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi when, You cannot study Mishnah without those names coming at you all, all the time. Remember, the bulk of the Mishnah revolves around these students of Rabbi Akiva. But these are the students of Rabbi Akiva's old age. And they're the ones who kept Torah going at that moment. Meaning Torah was in, in, in under threat of dying. And they kept Torah going. Now, why is this story brought here? Why is this story here at all? Remember, we were in the middle of a halachic, Extra halachic discussion about how many kids you should have that then tangented, tan- tangented into uh, spun off into how many students you should have. Why is this here?
1: Because it, it underlies the uh, the idea of you don't know what fate is going to 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 happen,
0: and therefore you should
1: you should have multiple children. So if you lose X number, you still have Y.
0: And here you should have multiple students. Yeah. Right. Okay. So then you can move back and say, wait a second. Is this Rabbi Akiva living up to his maxim or is this the story that taught Rebbe Akiva the maxim? We don't know. It could be that Rabbi Akiva heard what Rabbi Yeshua said about having kids and agreed and that was very nice. And then when all of his students died in one shot, he said, you know what? We should apply that to students too. And maybe his drushai is the result of this. Yeah. We don't Isn't there
1: that, that word that uh, Kolamulam Havera killed Yola? I mean,
0: Right, so there is such a statement in Chazal. I believe that it's Amoraic, that if you, that it's based on, by the way, the Pasuk that Ela told Moshe, the yeah, that Nadam are considered to be the children of Moshe, because if you teach your friends' kids Torah, it's like you're their parent, right? So that is a beautiful mixing that brings Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Yeshua together. But it's possible that Rabbi Akiva came to this conclusion about the importance of teaching a second generation of students when his first generation was wiped out, and you don't know what's going to happen. And it could be that they will go, they will be destroyed, they'll die. It could be that they'll become apostates, and it could be that they'll be uh, derelicts. And if they're good, and you raise two generations of good students, that's fantastic. That's amazing. Um, Okay, so that's the story. Now, what we're going to see in Yetz Hashem next week, although I'll give you a little teaser of it in a few minutes, is that this story has a few different versions in Chazal, and they're not all exactly the same. But in this version, and only in this version, there are two additions. All we heard so far was that Rabbi Akiva's students died at one shot. We don't know why what, what was the proximate medical cause of their death, physiological cause of their death. We know what the underlying spiritual cause was, we're told, uh, but we, and we're told it all happened in one time. One time could be a year. You know, we think today about people who passed away over the last two years of COVID-related things. So we, we consider that one period. One period, Even it's two years, one period. We don't know what this period is, all right? We also don't have any statement here that says, as a result of this tragedy, we do act or abstain from X. We don't have that anywhere. So let's see what the rest of the sugya says. Tana We have a later breitah talking about this story. It's not the same Brita, a different Brita that says, they all died from Pesach to Shavuot, meaning that it was in a stretch of seven weeks between Pesach and Shavuot that these students all died. That's not part of the original story. It's an add-on. Right. Now we have an Amoraic statement, which is they all died a bad death. Now that sounds weird because what's a good death? And the answer is, of course, there is a good death. Um, We know of people who live a beautiful, full life, and then uh, you know, at one point in their nineties or even older than that, you know, they uh, they go to bed at night, and they never wake up. And they die in their, plea, in, in their sleep peacefully. On the other hand, we know Nebuchadnezzar, people who go through very difficult times or who have very brutal ends, and they die a bad death. They, they all died a bad death. Ma'hi, what was that bad death? So notice, we're not going to kavod anymore. We're talking about the physiological death. Amrachman askara, diphtheria, something where... It would constrict the larynx to the, to the trachea so They couldn't breathe. And there was a
1: disease. There is a disease called ascariasis.
0: Okay, so it's very which, likely. Related which is, to no, that no, thing. but
1: that that, no, that disease, but it's that disease, incurred by parasite. It's a parasite in the gastrointestinal tract that can kill. But it's it's I, it's it is called ascariasis.
0: How does it kill?
1: The parasite uh, just taking away all your all your nutrients.
0: Well, so maybe that's this. I don't know.
1: I don't know. I don't okay.
0: So and in any case, world,
1: I know I know I saw cases when I was in Africa, and in, uh, they have them in Tanzania. They have them around Lake Lake Victoria as a infestation. Right. So they, It, they could, it, it really could be, there. and
0: it could be that's a borrowed term from what this is. This seems to be more uh, tracheal, but whatever it may be, it's it's not a fun way to die. I don't know that there are fun ways to die, but this is a bad way to die. Okay, now notice here that we did get part of our information, which is that this terrible tragedy happened between Pesach and Chabuot one year. But notice that at no point does the sugya say, and as a result of that, we don't have weddings. Or as a result of that, we don't cut our hair, et cetera, et cetera. We don't find that the sugya makes any mention of it. So I want to step back from that and ask the following question. If asked, why are we mourning during this period? And by the way, let's just collect ourselves historically. At what point in history do we find any custom of abstaining from anything special during this period? How early in Jewish history is there a mention of abstaining from anything special during this period? So the answer is the 10th century. Now, in the rest of the world, the 10th century is a long time ago. It's even before (laughs) Wi-Fi. In our history, 10th century is last week. Very recent. I mentioned on uh, Shabbat because uh, I w- we had where we were. We had two Ashkenazi minyanim and a Sephardi minyan, and it was the one time the Sephardi finished before us, because they take a long time. Finished before us because they don't have Yizkor. So I was explaining why they don't have Yizkor, why we do have Yizkor, because Yizkor was a relative recent Johnny come lately, um, because it was a response to the Crusades.
1: But they do have Ashkabah.
0: The original and the original Yizkor. Was set up as a as a, an, uh, a commemoration of the of the to honor the memory of those martyred in the Crusades, right? And so it later it got adopted to the Shalosh Regalim and Yom Kippur. It started out actually as the Shabbat before Shavuot. It's a matter, but again, and I said it's a recent thing. 10th century is not as recent, but close to it. What happens is in the 10th century, independently, two different Chachamim are asked the same question: one in Spain, one in Pavel. And the question is, we see that people don't get married. That was the only mention was marriage. People don't get married during this period. And the question they were asked was, is this a prohibition or is it it a prohibition? And the response in both cases was, it's not a prohibition, it's a custom. And the reason they were saying that, and the reason they were being asked was that evidently in their community, there was somebody who got married during this period. And the question was whether to censure the person. So if it's really a prohibition, he should be censured. On the other hand, if it's a custom, all right, so he didn't follow the custom. And the answer parallel was it's a custom. It's a custom of mourning. And it's a custom of mourning because of the students of every Kibu who died during this period. That's the answer given. So by the way, it's not the only answer given. And i going only be showing him there about six different explanations for why there aren't weddings during this period. And it was really only later on as a result of the crusades that the mourning expanded to more things. Because this was the period that during every crusade, it was after Pesach, that the, uh, the real black days of the crusade uh, took place, typically in, in May and June. But let's just ask about this. If we have a period now of mourning and we're mourning because of these students who died, so where do we ever have mourning, halachic mourning, or custom of mourning for people who died? I mean, there's an answer to that. When do we ever mourn people who died? After right. the funeral, uh, uh, Bill, what? Right after the funeral after uh, a funeral know, after of whom funeral of whom of the person that died really relative? i'm not mourning so there was a funeral last week i'm not mourning oh, oh for a relative. relative thank you yeah all right and so we only mourn for relatives how long do we mourn for a year that's the most typically we mourn for 30 days. 30 days Right? And it becomes less intense. And why are we mourning? We're mourning because somebody who was very important to us died. And we, and we, we can't see them, we can't hug them anymore, we can't talk to them anymore, we can't take care of them anymore. We are broken up. So my mother died, I'm broken up. And for the first day, it's really hard. And then for the first three days, it's more difficult. For Shiva, it's still difficult. Then the rest of Shloshim, it's still difficult. And, and Avelut becomes less and less intense. When is the absolutely last day of Avilut for anybody in the world? 12 months, not a year. 12 months after they're buried. That's it. There's no mourning after that. Mm-hmm. You have a yard site. A yard site is not a time of mourning. I could go, I could go to my own kids' wedding and dance in the middle of the circle on my mother's yard site. My mother would be very happy about that too. Right? There's no mourning past that. So here we're talking about something that's very strange. A, we're mourning for people who are not our relatives. We're mourning for people we never met. We're mourning for people whose names we don't know. We're mourning for people, like you pointed out, who actually are pointed out here as being, shall we say, justifiably killed from heaven's perspective. And most critically, we are mourning an anniversary mourning. Meaning, not because of something that just happened, because the anniversary of something that happened. It's very weird. Do we ever have anniversary mourning? Do we ever mourn for an event in the past? Yom HaShoah. That's not mourning. We don't mourn on Yom HaShoah. We commemorate Yom HaShoah. Yom HaZikoron is not mourning. It's commemoration. But there is. There's one day that is what we call Avilut Yishanah. Tishbab. Tishbab, that's it. Tishabab is the only Avelut Yishanah that exists, which is commemorative mourning. right? And by the way, it has certain leniences built in because of that. We don't otherwise have it. And by the way, how long is the B'Av? A day. That's it. So it extends because of the spirit of the time. It extends backwards and forwards a little bit. Okay. Here we're talking about seven weeks. Seven weeks of commemorative mourning, which doesn't exist, for people we never met, not our relatives, certainly not our direct relatives, who died in 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 this version of the story, their death was because they behaved badly. Our story is riddled with difficulties. The story itself isn't so riddled with difficulties except that uh, we're trying to figure out what exactly killed them, but the application of this story to the morning in this period is very difficult. So, like I said, I just want to give you a tease, just a tease. Of course, you have the source material, so you can look on your own. But if you take a look here on the second page, what do you see? Without clicking on the words, what do you see in front of you on the page? How many columns do you see? Three. You all see three columns, right? Okay. And you notice that each one of them has a heading, and they are all Midrash. Rashid Raba, which is 4th century Midrash, Kohalad Raba, which is a later Midrash, and in Tanchuma, which is also about 7th 8th century, all Midrash Israel. Yisrael. And if you look through it, you'll see that the first one starts with our pasukah about planting. Our second one starts with our pasukah about planting, and by the way, the third one also used the pasukah about planting. And all three of them mention the story of Rabbi Kiva's students but they don't all have the same numbers of students who died. And there's other differences in the story. So what we're going to do next week is we're going to look at two things. The different versions of the story of Kiba's students and try to explain what happened to the story and where it came from, like how it developed. And the second thing is we're going to look at several other versions of the interpretation of that Pasukan Kohelet. And if you sneak a peek to the last page of this handout, you'll see a synoptic presentation of all the different opinions, but allow yourself the the pleasure of, uh, of doing it together with us next week. Okay. Um, so in your touch, John, again, if somebody comes up to you this week and says, I understand that you guys are avoiding weddings during this period and everything else, say, why? Say, I don't know. I'll wait for a week and call me back next Monday night and I'll take you.